Once again, it is so good to be with you this morning. Thank you for coming. My name is Matt Carter, lead pastor here at Sagemont Church. If you brought a Bible, I want to invite you to open up your Bible to the book of Mark chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll get there in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring a, one with you, that's fine. We've got the scriptures that are going to be on the screen. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 12. We'll be there in a second. But I want to begin by saying a single word to you. And here's the word that I'm going to give you. This word I'm going to give you is the word gospel. And that word gospel is a word that separates and it distinguishes Christianity from every single religion in the history of the world. It's the word gospel. Now let me ask you a question. When you hear that word, what sort of comes to mind? A lot of people, when you hear the word gospel, you think about a style of music. You think about a gospel choir, gospel quartet, gospel concert. Some people, when you hear the word gospel, you, you think that it's a synonym for the word truth. That someone says something you agree with, you say, that's the gospel, that's the gospel truth. And in contemporary times, it has come to mean all those things, but the word gospel, that, those things are not the original intended meaning of that word. But the word gospel has an infinitely deeper meaning than that, okay? Um, for those of you that are new, the New Testament was written in Greek. That was the original language that it was written in. And the word that we translate into English gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion. And I want you to hear that, euangelion. And back in the day, that word euangelion that we translate into gospel, it originally had a military context. It was always originally used in a military context because back in the day, what happened was that people in Jesus' time, people lived in these walled off cities. And so they had guards that were on the towers and they would look out because all the time there'd be foreign armies that would come and they would try to invade the city that was surrounded with walls. And so when the guard was out there, they'd see a foreign, foreign army coming. Then what the home city would do is the home city would send out their army to defend the city. Now, unfortunately, this was, a, this was a very difficult, tense time for the city when they sent their army out because they had no idea whether their home army was winning or they were losing, right? This was before Twitter. You had no idea what was going on. And so it was a tense time. They didn't know if they were gonna live. They didn't know if they were gonna die because if the home army lost, it was game over. Foreign army would come in, it would raid the city, would kill everybody. But, and hear this, if the home army won, if the home army was victorious, then what the home army would do is they would send a messenger back to the city. And the message that the messenger gave to the city was called an euangelion. It's translated into English as gospel, and it's a word that means the good news. The messenger would come back and he would stand up on top of the city wall and he would proclaim his euangelion. He'd proclaim his gospel. He'd proclaim his good news. He'd stand up on top of the city wall and he would shout to everybody that would listen, hey everybody, I got a new euangelion for you today. You're not gonna die, but you're gonna live. Your children are gonna live. Your grandchildren are gonna live because there has been a great battle that has been won 
for you. And I want you to hear this. Listen carefully. The word gospel in its original meaning, the word gospel is a word that means the good news of a battle that's already been won. That's the word gospel. It's the good news of a battle that's already been won. And that is why this whole thing that we celebrate is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you don't hear anything, guys, I really want you to hear this. That the essence and the core and the foundation of Christianity is not a religion. The essence and the core and the foundation of Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts that you try to accomplish in order to please God, but the foundation of Christianity is the good news that Jesus Christ was sent to the battlefield of sin and death on our behalf, and he has emerged victorious. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the essence and the foundation of our faith. It's the good news that the greatest battle of our entire lives, which is our battle against sin and our battle against death, has already been won for us by Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of us grew up in church. And so I want to speak to you for a second because I think the tragedy for a lot of us in this room, the tragedy for a lot of us in this room is that you've taken Jesus' dream for you and his dream for me, which is to be a person that walks in the joy, walks in the freedom, and walks in the power of the gospel. And you've traded it in for just another expression of religion that Jesus Christ never intended to be. And I say that because I lived that out for the longest time. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, I grew up in church, grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and I don't know if it was their intention. I'm talking about my youth pastor and my pastor. I don't know if it was their intention, but pretty much every sermon or talk that I could ever remember hearing pretty much had this same thing. And here was the thing, that as a Christian, there are things that you do. That as a Christian, there are things that you don't do. And the way I sort of thought about it as a kid growing up is that there was God had a good list and a bad list. And I was taught that subtly, I don't think they ever just came right out and said it, but this is what I took away from it. I was taught that God really likes it and God is pleased with me when I do the things on the good list. And I was also taught that God didn't like it and he wasn't pleased with me if I did the things on the bad list. And so when I heard that, that presented to me a pretty significant problem because I don't know about you growing up, but me growing up, I had a pretty bad habit of doing some things on the bad list. And so when I did those things on, on, on what I thought was the bad list that Christians aren't supposed to do, when I failed, when I sinned, it would crush me. And the reason it would crush me is because I knew they were wrong, I knew God didn't like it. So the, the whole time that I fail, I'm thinking, no way God is pleased with me. No way he likes me. No way do I have his favor. He might not even love me. And that's how I, how I sort of walked around most of my life with this underlying sense of guilt and fear that God didn't like me and that his wrath was coming any minute of my life. And that's how things sort of were until summer would come around and I'd go to youth summer camp. And this youth pastor guy would get up and he'd start preaching again about the things that you weren't supposed to do on the bad list. And I'd get super convicted because he was a really good speaker about how not to do things on the bad list. And so I'd get really convicted 
And I'd cry and I'd walk down to the front um, at the altar call and I would make all these commitments to God. God, I'm never doing anything ever again on the bad list. I give you my word. And that would last for about two weeks. When I'd come home and I'd fail again, sinned again, did things on the bad list again. And the result of that, I want you to hear this. The result of that is I would hate myself. Hate myself. Self-loathing. I think, man, I keep failing. God must not be pleased with me. He must be sick of me. I'm not even sure if I'm really a Christian because I keep doing the things on the bad list. Now, here's the thing. There were some days, maybe even significant stretches of time where I did more things on the good list than the bad list. And I was walking with, walking with the Lord. I was being righteous. I was being holy. And it was during those times that I really thought that God was pleased with me. I thought, all right, now he loves me. Now he likes me because I'm doing the things on the good list. I'm rocking it. But the problem with that was this. It was on those days I was being good and I thought God loved me. Um, I didn't hate myself. I didn't hate myself. But what I did in those moments was all I did is I replaced my self-loathing with some good old-fashioned self-righteousness. Which is I thought God was pleased with me because of what I did every day of my life. And so for years, Sagemont, that was what my Christianity was all about. It was this big, fat pendulum swing. I've been good. God likes me. I haven't been good. God doesn't like me. I've been bad. God's, or I've been good. God's pleased with me. I've been bad. God is not pleased with me. And so hear this. For me, Christianity was this huge battle that I was fighting. That I was fighting to do enough good so that God would accept me and be pleased with me. And for many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I just described your Christianity. I described your experience with it. But if that's you, I want you to hear something this morning. That that picture of Christianity that I just painted is not the picture of Christianity that Jesus Christ taught. The picture of Jesus, or picture of Christianity that Jesus taught was this. Is that God loves you, and He accepts you, and He is pleased with you. Not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done. But God loves you and he accepts you and he is pleased with you based on what Jesus Christ has already done for you at the cross. It's the gospel. Foundation of Christianity is the gospel. It's the good news of a battle that's already been won for you. Okay? And as far as you have to see this, and Jesus is talking about this gospel, this good news of a battle that's already been won for you. As far as you have to see, this is the very first sentence of the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. All right, let's look at it. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Mark 1, 12. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's been baptized. He's been out in the wilderness where Satan tempts him. Did not work. Mark 1, 12. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John, that's his cousin, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. 
Now look at verse 15, very first sentence, very first sermon Jesus ever preached. Verse 15, and saying, Jesus is saying this, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus rose up on the scene and he starts preaching, okay? He rose up on the scene and starts preaching. And when he rose up on the scene and started preaching, here's what he did not say. When he walks up, the very first thing he says was not, hey everybody, my name's Jesus from Nazareth and I've got a new religion for you. So here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna preach a little while for about three years and then we're gonna go out there and we're gonna try really, really hard to follow God's rules better than the religion before me. That's not what he said. Jesus rolls up on the scene. Very first thing he ever preaches was the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Now to understand how absolutely powerful that is and unbelievable it is, you gotta look at the first part of the verse there. So look at Mark 1, 15 again. Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled. And so Jesus starts the sentence and he says, the time is fulfilled. Now what does that mean? Why did he say that? Why did he say the time is before, fulfilled before he says, believe the gospel? Well, here's the thing. To understand what it means that the time is fulfilled, you have to understand how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament. And here's how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament. That even in the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that God is a God of love. And he's a God of mercy. And he's also a God that's slow to anger. And so if you were sinning, because he's a God of love and God of mercy and he's slow to anger, he was extremely patient with us when we sinned. He's slow to anger. But the Bible also teaches us, even in the Old Testament, that even though he's a God of love and he's a God of mercy and he's a God that's slow to anger, the Bible also teaches us that he is a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, that means that he must eventually punish sin or it's unjust. Let me show you what I'm talking by that. It's a concept uh, that all of us really understand. That to be a, a person of justice, sin must be punished or paid for. I'll give you a crazy hypothetical example this morning. Let's say, for instance, that for some crazy reason, someone murdered a family member of yours in cold blood. Killed him. A person gets arrested. Months later, they bring him into court. You're there because they murdered your family member in cold blood. Judge walks in, everybody stands up. He has everybody sit down. He looks at the, the man that murdered your family member in cold blood and he says, you know what? I'm feeling loving today. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna let you go. You're free to go because I'm feeling loving and forgiving today. What would you do? I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm standing at the back of that courtroom and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, that is unjust. Because you could say in that moment that that judge was loving, but you could not say that he was just. Justice demands that sin be paid for and our God is a God of justice. It says it, don't turn there, but listen, in Exodus 34, 6, God speaking. Listen to how God describes himself. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, 
A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 7, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so we've got this God, he's describing himself, I'm a loving God, I'm a patient God, I'm a merciful God. But then he stops there in verse seven and he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty? God's justice demands that sin be atoned for. Now, the Old Testament has a term for that moment, the Old Testament has a term for the moment when God's patient endurance of our sin is over. And because of his justice, he is going to enact his justice by pouring out his wrath over sin. And, and that moment is called the time of fulfillment. That's what it means. The time of fulfillment was a term that meant that God was done being patient with our sin and that he was about to go Old Testament, wrath of God style, hellfire and brimstone on us because of our sin. Okay, that's what it means. And so I want you to imagine for a second that you were in the original audience that heard Jesus say that. You're hanging out in Galilee, you're fishing, you're doing anything, maybe you got your family there. And this guy comes walking up. You've heard his name's Jesus. You've heard he's a prophet, prophet of God. He's been doing some crazy stuff and healing people. So he starts talking. And so, you, so you're listening. And imagine you're standing there. You've read the Old Testament. You grew up in that culture. And all of a sudden, the first thing out of the prophet of God's mouth is the time is fulfilled. And what's going through your mind? What's going through your mind when the prophet of God walks up and says, the time is fulfilled? What's going through your mind is, oh no, the time's fulfilled? God's patient endurance of our sin is over and his wrath is coming. The time's fulfilled. You look at your wife, you look at your husband and say, baby, time to pack up the tent. Time to pack up the camels and the donkeys and the kids and the grandkids and we are getting the heck out of Dodge. Now, how do you think, if that's how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament, that he would be patient over our sin, he would be patient over our sin, but when the time was fulfilled, he poured out his wrath. That's how it always been. How do you expect Jesus to finish that sentence? How would that person sit in the crowd have expected Jesus to finish the sentence? Here's what they would have expected Jesus to finish the sentence with. You'd expect him to say, hey, everybody, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent because God's about to take you out. But that's not what Jesus said. And what Jesus would say would absolutely and utterly set apart and would distinguish Christianity from every religion in the history of the world. And here's what he said. Mark chapter one, verse 15. Jesus comes up on the scene and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. You're sitting there and you hear that. The time is fulfilled. Oh, no. God's patient endurance of our sin is over. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And he just said, I'm supposed to do what? I'm supposed to believe 
and some good news? What does that mean? What, what, what is this good news that I'm supposed to believe in? Well, church, here's what Jesus Christ just said, and I want you to hear this. Here's what Jesus just said. Jesus just told us that, yes, every single one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus said, yes, all of us, every single one of us in this room has more things in the bad column than in the good column. And Jesus just said, yes, the time is fulfilled. The time was fulfilled and his wrath was going to be poured out over our sin. But this time, our response is not to run. It was not to be afraid. It was not to cower at the wrath of God. But this time he says, all in the world that you got to do is believe the good news. And what is the good news? This is the good news. Jesus was saying, this time, God's wrath for your sin was not going to be poured out on you. But he was saying this time, God's wrath for your sin was going to be poured out on Jesus for you. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's why in Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us since. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. That means we were declared not guilty by his blood in the sight of God. Now that we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is good news. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That means the payment that you and I earn for our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good news. Sage Mont, that's why the foundation of our faith is called the gospel. The foundation of Christianity, it's not a list of do's and don'ts that we enact hoping to please God, but the foundation of our faith is an euangelion. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has already won the battle of sin and death for us. And that's why Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. So here's my question for you today. Why does that one sentence by Jesus, why does that one statement distinguish Christianity from every religion in the history of the world? Why is that one statement so important? Why does it radically make us unique and set us apart? And here's the answer. I've got a few things here. I'll read them to you. Every other religion in the world is defined by someone that tries their hardest to follow a list of do's and don'ts hoping to please God. But a Christ follower is defined as someone who repents and believes the gospel. Every other religion, every other religion says if you're bad, and you don't follow the rules, God will punish you. But the gospel says you were bad. You didn't follow all the rules, but Jesus Christ took your punishment for you. Every other religion says, you wanna please God? Here's what you have to do. But the gospel says God is pleased with you because of what Jesus Christ has already done for you at the cross. 
Every other religion says, follow all the rules and maybe you can earn your way back to God. But the gospel says the way back to God has already been earned for you because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Every other religion says, I obey God so that I will be accepted by him. The gospel says, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, I'm already accepted by him. Therefore, I'm going to go obey God. You see the radical difference between the two? The eternal difference between the two, and that's why I said earlier that it's a tragedy that so many of us in this room, in the sound of my voice, somewhere along the way, we've turned Christianity from this beautiful, unique, grace-filled participation in the gospel, and we've traded it in for just another run-of-the-mill, do-it-yourself, works-based religion that Jesus never meant it to be. And so let me ask you one more question here. Like, you're a believer. If somebody were to follow you around for a while and they were to hear somehow your thoughts and they were to see your actions and they were to hear your prayers, what would they see? Would they see a person that's walking in just another religion, trying to please God, follow the rules, or would they see a person that was walking in the freedom and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, here's some of the ways you can know today. Whether you're a person that's walking in the gospel or you're walking in just another religion. Here's how you can know. A religious-centered person regularly experiences guilt when they sin. Because you let God down again. But a gospel-centered person doesn't experience guilt when they sin, but they experience sorrow when they sin, and that sorrow is completely replaced by joy of the fact that Jesus had already become your sin and given you his righteousness. A religious-centered person runs from God when they sin because they fear his wrath. A gospel-centered person runs to God when they sin because they know Jesus already took your wrath for you. A religious-centered person feels like Christianity is this huge burden. And I think it's a burden because their faith is centered around this daily striving to follow all the rules, which, by the way, is impossible. But a gospel-centered person rocks around with the sense that this huge burden has been lifted for them because the Scripture tells us that Jesus followed all the rules perfectly for you and died in your place. Religious-centered person repents of their sin and they obey God because of an ungodly fear of the Lord. But a gospel-centered person repents of their sin and obeys God because of the unimaginable grace and forgiveness they've already received through the cross and the resurrection. And here's the last one. A religious-centered person, their worship is lifeless person that's walking in religion, you can, I'm not trying to put anybody in the spot, but you can always spot them. A person that's walking in religion, this rules-based, do-it-yourself thing, and not walking in the freedom and the power of the gospel, you can spot a person that's never, it's never hit their heart in the deepest places of who they are, that I am completely forgiven, not by what I've done or haven't done, but by the work of Jesus on the cross, in the way that you can spot them is their worship is lifeless. Guys, I want you to think about it. 
I want you to think about those people inside those city walls on the day when the messenger came back. They didn't know if it was going to be bad news or they didn't know if it was going to be a new angelion, a good news. And so everybody sees that the messenger's coming back to see if the home army won. And so the entire city gathers in the courtyard there. The messenger slowly walks up to the top of the city walls. Everybody's sitting there. Their hearts are beating in their chest. And then all of a sudden everything gets really quiet. And the messenger shouts at the top of his lungs, Hey everybody, I have for you today an Uangalion. I have good news for you. You're not going to die. Your children aren't going to die. Your grandchildren aren't going to die because there has been a great battle that has been won for you. What do you think they did? When he shouted the Uangalion that someone had won a battle for them and they're going to live, what do you think they did? I'm going to tell you what they didn't do. They didn't golf clap. Hey, let's go eat lunch. All right, let's go. Thank you. Thank you, messenger. When that guy stood at the top of the walls and screamed out, I have an Uangalion for you. You're not going to die. Your children aren't going to die. Your grandchildren aren't going to die. You're going to live because there's been a great battle won for you. I'm going to tell you what they did. They threw their arms in the air as high as they would go. And they started high-fiving and their fists pumping and they're shouting at the top of their lungs and they're dancing and they're singing because of the good news of the battle that had already been won. I'm gonna tell you something, church. Religion never produces worship in the human heart, ever. But the gospel always produces worship in the human heart. I wanna end today with a story just to help this sink into us how amazing it is that we have received the gospel, that we have access to Christ and the Lord through the gospel. And it's a story of my youngest son, just turned 16 last week. His name's Sammy. Um, one of the cutest kids I've ever seen in the history of the world. He's not that cute now. He thinks he is, but he's not. And um, but he was adorable. When he was a little guy, Jen, how, how old was he? You don't even know what I'm talking about, do you? All right. Um, he was probably three or four, maybe five. He was a little guy, pudgy cheeks, adorable. And Sammy had this tender heart for the Lord. He still does, but he just has always had this tender heart for God. He's five, little guy. And Jennifer and I were debating, it was Good Friday, Years ago, my kids are little, still at the house, and we were debating as to whether or not we wanted to let them watch The Passion of the Christ, that Mel Gibson movie. Because we, we knew it was violent, but we were just debating. Like, we didn't want them to think Easter was Easter bunnies and Easter eggs and all this stuff. We really wanted them to understand what Good Friday was all about, that Jesus became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ bore the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could receive God's love and be called children, sons and daughters of God. And so we made the decision that we wanted to show them this movie. And 
There's this part of the movie where Jesus is just getting a crud beat out of him. He's on a post there whipping him with a cat of nine tails. If you know what a cat of nine tails is, it has all these leather straps and these bits of glass and metal on it. And they would hit Jesus with it on his back. It would stick into his back. They'd pull it off. He was bleeding profusely. I'm kind of watching my kids through this part. And Sammy's not really crying yet. I mean, he's watching. He's seeing it. I'm like, okay, thank you, God. He's not, he's doing okay. But then what happened next, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's that scene that they gave Jesus the cross and, and Jesus was carrying the cross up to Calvary and he kept falling. And he was just out of strength. He kept falling, kept falling, and kept falling. And then about the third time Jesus fell on the ground, Sammy lost it. And he just started crying as hard as he could cry. And I, Jennifer and I kind of got down, got on the ground and held him. And I said, Sammy, buddy, are you okay? What's going on? And he looked up at me and he said, Daddy, I wish I could carry that cross for Jesus. And then he said something I'll never forget. Tears just streaming down his face. He said, he said, Daddy, I would use all my strength to carry that cross for him. And I looked at Sammy and I lost it. I said, Sammy, I would too. I would too, buddy give anything to carry that cross for Jesus. Because you see, little Sammy was on to something. That was our cross Jesus was carrying. That was our cross. It was meant for you. It was meant for me that Jesus was burying, caring for us on that day. But Sagemont, I have a new Angelion for you today. Jesus bore that cross, and when he did, he bore your sin, and you carry it no more. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I have a new Angelion for you today. He died for you. And three days later, he rose from the grave and our God is alive. And that's not just good news. But that's the best news that's ever been told. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Today, if you're here and there never has been a time in your life where you've believed the gospel, where you believe the good news of a battle that's already been won just right now, and the best way you know how, I just want you to ask that the Lord would forgive you, that he would cover you with his blood, and so when he sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus and not your sin. Ask him to be your Lord and your Savior. If you're here today and you're a believer, but you've been 
maybe for years, just walking in a religion. Instead of the power of the gospel, I just wanna invite you right now to just say, Lord, I need you to remind me of the battle that's already been won for me. Oh Jesus, I, I thank you for the cross. God, we thank you for the empty tomb. It changes everything. God, would we be a people that live like it? And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.